First Kings chapter five to nine is our text. Thirteen lengthy chapters describe the building of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter twenty-five to forty, excepting three chapters in the middle. Describe the building of the tabernacle and that tent, which was both beautiful and durable, lasted 450 years. By that tent, Israel approached to God. It was portable so that wherever they moved through the wilderness, they could bring the tent with them. But now they have a permanent country. They have a permanent king. And so they are going to build a permanent building. And this section of the book of Kings shows us the importance of architecture. You could call the sermon this morning, Architecture to the Glory of God. Architecture is very important. Let me give you three reasons why. Number one, it cannot be avoided and it never rests. If someone builds an ugly building on Rissick Street, we all have to pass it. They're forcing their art on us. We have to see it every day. But if someone builds something beautiful, they are enhancing our lives. We can't avoid it. It never rests. It never takes a break. Architecture is always talking. Number two, architecture is the largest And most expensive art form. Oh, I wish my wife were here. And she says, no, no. A beautiful Steinway piano is a million rand. And I say, that's nothing compared to the arches of a cathedral. It is the most beautiful or the most expensive. And it's the largest art form in the world. And number three, architecture dignifies and raises the citizens around it. Dignified architecture slows the descent downward into depravity. It is more difficult for a society with beautiful architecture all around it To spiral into decay. It can spiral into decay. But it is more difficult. Architecture is one of those common graces. By which God stems the flow of evil. Art is not something to be passed over lightly as. Oh that's just for the rich people. Everyone needs art. And everyone needs architecture. It displays the most useful and enduring art that a society can create. Which is why a society feels shame if they have no architecture to offer. And many years ago, in England, they discovered three traces or three marks to determine is a people group civilized or not. Number one, do they have any buildings More than two stories. 
Number two, do they have a written language? Number three, do they have musical notation? That is, have they ever written down how a song is to be played so that when she sings it, her grandchildren will sing it the exact same way because it's written down? But did you notice that? If there's three ways to determine how dignified a society is, one of them is the art, architecture, the building. That's in the Bible. That's biblical. It's part of a Christian heritage. That's not Western imperialism. It's biblical. It's one more mark of common grace that God gives to his people. No one wants to live in a shack. And no one builds a two-story shack. Because art raises us and dignifies us. Scripture gives us four different examples of architecture. At least, it gives the, the, in some detail the design for four different pieces of architecture. Can you think of them? One is the temple right here. Can you think of another one? I've already mentioned it this morning. The Ark? Do you mean the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of Noah? The Ark of Noah is what I was thinking of. The Ark of the Covenant also is beautiful, but is it architecture? It's not a building, so I'll put that in the category of art. There's the, the Ark of Noah, the tabernacle in Exodus, the temple, and then in the book of Ezekiel, there are nine chapters given to a future temple. Those are the four architectural Descriptions in the Bible, but if you add up all those chapters, you get a book longer than the Gospels, Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. You have a lot of material in the Bible about architectural plans. How long, how high, how wide, what kind of material, how do you build it? When I moved here, I built my house and I said... I'm just going to build a square, cheap building. I was wrong. I should have read 1 Kings and thought more carefully about what is sent, what message is sent. Building and architecture are art forms, and every art form communicates. Remember that message as a side point today. That's a side message. That's not the main point of the passage. We're just getting into it today. But every art form sends a message, and architecture is an art form. Here in this passage, we see David, at least David's plan that he devised about 30 years ago. For about 30 years, this plan has been in the making. He wanted to build something permanent and beautiful. Listen to a psalm that David wrote. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing if I desire of the Lord, that I will seek after. Listen to the word. So that I may dwell where? In the house of the Lord. To inquire of the Lord. To behold the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. House of the Lord, temple of the Lord. The very next verse. For in the day of trouble, he will hide me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. Two verses, four words. He says, temple, house of God, tabernacle, and tent. David was thinking architecturally. And he thought of God as his temple. 
And for 30 years, David plans to build this and lays aside all his money and taxes his people to take their money for the same thing. And now this temple is going to be built. It was this great devotion of David that caused him to bring up the idea of a temple for Jehovah. And now his son is going to build it. In chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, Solomon speaks to a man named Hiram. And Solomon says, Hiram, I need your help. Hiram was the king of Tyre. A pagan king is going to help Solomon build this temple. Hiram loved David. And he loved Solomon because of Solomon's wisdom. And chapter 5, verses 2 through 5 show that Solomon now has the requirement to build it. Why does architecture affect us so powerfully? Why do buildings affect us? Is this because we want a place to live where we won't get wet? Warm and dry, is that all? If so, why do you buy paint? Paint doesn't help you stay warm or dry. Very few of us understand how great this project was. Very few of us understand how great this temple was. Was, And even fewer of us understand the clear message that God was sending to us. So today, let me give you two points. Number one, what did they do? Number two, what did it mean? Action and meaning. Or to turn it another way, they built the temple. But there's something the temple was saying. The temple was talking. It wasn't silent. Those are the two points. And the main point of the whole sermon is very simple. Drawing near to God is such an overwhelmingly difficult thing to do that you could never do it. It's not possible. It's beyond you unless God does it. That's the point. When you read this, you're supposed to say to yourself, That's what's required? I can't do that. Let's see it. Number one, the temple. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. Solomon gathers a group of contractors. Hiram. He's a brilliant man and a good administrator. In verses 1 to 12, he makes a contract with this king. In verses 13 through 16, look down at verse 13. He hires some workers. How many workers does he hire in verse 13? 30,000. Do you think you could build a good project with 30,000 workers? That's not even near enough. Look at verse 14. He sends them to Lebanon 10,000 per month by course. A month they're working, two months they're at home. Verse 15. Solomon had three score and 10,000. 70,000 men who carried burdens. And how many men cut the rock? Add those numbers up. 70 and 80 is 150,000 plus the previous 30,000. How many people are working? 180,000. Not quite. We're almost done, but not quite. Verse 16. Beside the chief of Solomon's officers, which were over the work, 3,300. Ha! Ha! 183,000 men are working at this temple. 
Can you imagine just the logistics of going to lunch? 183,000 workers. That's the entire Makata municipality almost. Almost the entire Makata municipality, including Louis Tricart and Shakota and Jerere and Sintumulukutama and Elam and all the villages around. 183,000 workers. This is about 15% of the total workforce of Israel, and they're going to work at this for 20 years. It's a massive tax. We'll cover it in about two weeks when we come back to this, because this is going to come back to Solomon. For 20 years, 15% of the workforce is working for the temple. Can you imagine that? We know it because we can compare the census that David took in 2 Samuel chapter 24. There was 1.3 million men who were in the workforce. And now we've got 183,000 of them coming on to work at the temple. Solomon is a brilliant administrator. It is a task just to keep 183,000 people in order. Can you imagine how complicated and busy and exhausting that would be? That's why I said, drawing near to God is too difficult for you. It took the entire nation. It's 183,000 people working, but how many people had to work to provide clothes for them or food for them? Those 183,000 don't include all the women cooking food on the side to sell to them at lunchtime. Doesn't include all the people giving them transport or food. The entire, the entire economy would have been affected and largely controlled by this building project. Look at chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 6 verse 1. It came to pass in the 480th year that they come out of the land of Egypt. In the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. He begins to build the house of the Lord, and now we have to see a drawing. If you want to see some amazing pictures, what's the test of that? If you want to see some amazing pictures, you can Google Solomon's Temple and look for the pictures. <clears throat> Here is this temple. It's 30 meters long, 10 meters wide, and listen to this, 50. Meters tall. Okay, look up here, look up here. From one end of this building to the other end of the building that we're in is almost 30 meters. Are you with me? The temple would have been about as long as this building we're in right now. It would have been about as wide as this temple, as this building we're in right now. But it would have been much taller. 15 meters tall. That's amazing. You can see here on the drawing, the first temple on the top, I'm sorry, the first picture on the top of the the page. The temple, that's about the dimensions of it. And then there was a porch in front, as you see there. On the drawing. There were framed windows. Chapter 6 verse 4. Windows that were high above the ground. 
The windows were high above the ground for two reasons. Number one, outside and all around, there were rooms built. That's chapter 6, verses... Where are these chambers? Chapter 6, verses 8, 9, and 10. All these rooms built around the side. And also, it had to be high so that no one could see into the inner sanctuary. The Hebrew word in verse 4 for these windows is unusual. In the King James, it calls them narrow. That may be the meaning. The difficulty is, it's a Hebrew word that's connected to geography. And it may mean fluted, or angled, or framed. Perhaps the windows were beautifully framed, as the New American Standard translates it. Or perhaps they were fluted so that they would receive a lot of light from the outside and angle it down to a strong concentration inside the temple. Some commentators believe that the, the windows were built to draw the, the light in so that it would take a lot of light and shine it into a small area. Almost like a spotlight on the Ark of the Covenant. They were beautiful though, whatever they were. However they were arranged. Look at this in verse 7. The house, when it was in building, was built of stone, made ready before it was brought to the place. Why? So that there was no sound of any iron tool on the job site. Raise your hand if you've ever worked building bricks. Or building, if you've ever worked with building, put your hand up. Anyone here? Do you know how difficult it is to do any building project and not use a metal tool at the place where you're building? My father was in construction. I built my house. I built two churches. I built, starting to build some things in Valdezia. Just the thought with these little bricks that we have to take the bricks away and cut them and bring them back. But the blocks they were using were enormous. And to have them cut perfectly, that alone would have added a great margin of work and difficulty to the workforce. But why was it done? <coughs> because God is holy. Friends, we have lost the idea of the exalted glory of God. We have churches that come to church wearing inflatable animal costumes. We just drove by one of them coming here to church this morning. That has nothing to do with the worship of Jehovah. Do that at some kiddie party. You think you've come to, you think you've come to sing and dance and laugh. I want you to come and hear the Bible. And we don't have a dress code. But I would never tell someone, come as you are. Because the Bible doesn't say that. If you say, well, that's frightening. It is a terrifying thing to come to God. If that's heavy for you, good. You might understand the Christian religion. Well, I don't like that. Let me go to a church where, where it's not so heavy then you don't understand the message of the temple. They can't even make a noise. 
where they're building this place to the glory of God. It's terrifying. Do you remember the book of Hebrews? Chapter 12, our God is a consuming fire. You don't play. You don't trifle. You don't come to church for what you want. Your desires play very little part in this, except that they are in submission to God. Your preferences and, well, I really like, that really has nothing to do with the worship of a Christian church. As we read this morning in the Baptist Confession... The Baptists believe, and Grace Bible Church teaches because it's in the Bible, we are slaves of sin. We are bound by our sin unless God's grace has freed us. No, we don't come here lightly. This is a most holy and sacred religion. In verse 18, look at chapter 6, verse 18. The cedar of the house was carved with trim in ornate patterns. Open flowers, all in this very expensive cedar wood. Beautiful trim all around. Verses 21 and 22. Solomon overlaid the house within with pure gold. He made a partition by the chains of gold before the sanctuary, and he overlaid it with gold. And the whole house he overlaid with gold. Until he had finished all the house, also the whole altar that was by the sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. Can you imagine seeing a building of this size, 15 meters tall, coated with gold, even the floors? It says that even the floors were covered with gold. All of the walls, chapter 6, verse 29, were covered with carved angels and flowers and palm trees. Chapter 6, verse 36, the walls around the entire complex were made up of three rows of stone and topped with cedar wood for a beautiful artwork at the top. Look down at that drawing. About 600 meters of wall. Three rows of brick topped with cedar. The temple coated within and without of gold. This house is being built for seven and a half years. Chapter 7, verse 1. When they finished the temple, what does Solomon build? Chapter 7, verse 1. His own house. His own house gets one verse. The temple gets a whole chapter. In fact, more than a chapter because much of chapter 7 is about the temple as well. That's the way to think, brothers and sisters. You take seven years on the temple, one verse about your house. Yes, the total project took 20 years. Everything you see on the drawing took 20 years. Chapter 9, verse 10 says it took them 20 years. But it wasn't seven years for the house of God and 13 years for Solomon's house. It was seven years for the house of God and 13 more years for all of these buildings. 
including the foundation. The foundation itself would have been a massive job. As the text tells us, the foundation stones were hard marble or granite. All around there's beauty. Look, <clears throat> look at chapter 7, verse 2. What does he build after he builds his house? The house of the forest of Lebanon, right? Look at that in the drawing. Do you see in the drawing? It's the bottom one. It was probably a lecture hall for Solomon to teach about trees and animals. Go back to chapter 4, verses 32 and 33. It says, Solomon lectured and people came from all over the earth to hear this man lecture. He's a professor. He's a scientist. Muslims say they started the first university in the world. No, Solomon did. He's lecturing on botany and zoology. He's telling us how these things are built or how these things work. And the glories of God's creation. There's also a hall of pillars. Do you see that? The porch of pillars and then the throne porch. These are places like courts. When a criminal was taken, they would come to these places. Solomon was building this a great time. Look over in chapter 7, verse 15. What does he build in 7.15? Two pillars. Let me explain these two pillars for you. It's in chapter 7, verse 15, down to verse 22. Look up this way. Each pillar was six meters in circumference. That means they were very large. About the area that you see right here. Nine meters tall. Carved and engraved all around with animals and nature scenes. With fruit and with lattice work. Beautiful and intricate designs. So when you came to the temple, you would want to look just at the pillars. But all the walls of the temple, did you forget they have lions on them and angels? Maybe you'll look at the walls. Maybe you'll look at the pillars. You want to be there. It's beautiful. It's not merely pragmatic. And it certainly wasn't preference. Oh, I like blue. No, let's put a lion on it. This wasn't, God, this wasn't the people's preference. There was no democracy. They didn't vote and say, what would you like to put on it? No democracy. It was the glory of God that dictated these things. In chapter 7, verse 23, there's a beautiful pool. It stands on the back of 12 oxen, three facing east, three facing south, three facing west, and three facing north. An enormous pool, almost like a fountain. Then there was two colonnades. Roger Scruton in his book, uh, The Aesthetics of Architecture. Roger Scruton is a famous uh, British conservative and British philosopher of aesthetics. Roger Scruton said, if you, want make, if you want to make a beautiful building, you need one of three things in your building. You want to guess what one of the three things are? If you want a beautiful building, you need one of three things. What are they? I don't want to guess. I've already told you. What is it? What? 
He says you need an arch or you need pillars or you need a colonnade. A colonnade is a repeating pattern over and over, over a line. So that the eyes catch and fly down the line, like this, this set of windows. There's a colonnade. He says if you want something beautiful, you've got to put either an arch, or a pillar, or a colonnade. He puts two pillars. And then he makes, in chapter 7, verse, uh, verse 27, down to verse 42, he makes two colonnades. These enormous bronze stands with tanks on top of them. And they're decorated beautifully. Each one can hold about 800 liters of water. Five on this side. Five on this side. So that when you walk into the temple, look again at the drawing, and imagine yourself walking in from the eastern gate. When you walk in from the eastern gate, you see the altar in front of you. You see this enormous structure Coated in gold, you see nine meter pillars, two of them with names. They named their pillars. Two pillars on either side, a colonnade on either side. What does it say? It says magnificent. It says this is not the place for children to be running. It says this is not the place for you to come in your shorts and say, hey, let me take a selfie. It says something great is happening here. Something powerful is going on. Something glorious. Heaven is touching earth. It's something amazing. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now Solomon's going to dedicate this temple. Verse 1. Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes. He gathers them together in chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. He brings the ark of the Lord into the temple. Look at verse 10. It came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Can you imagine that? God came down. He was pleased. He came from heaven to earth. As a picture of the incarnation. A prophecy that someday he would come down completely and take on human flesh. Chapter 8 verses 12 to 21. Solomon addresses the people. You remember Solomon looked. He sees this cloud. The priests are afraid. They come quickly out of the temple. And now in the courtyard. If you see in your drawing. Here in the courtyard. Solomon is gathered. And there are Thousands, possibly millions of people gathered in the general area. They gathered to see the temple. And that's why Solomon says in verse 12. Then spoke Solomon. The Lord said that he would dwell in what? What will he dwell in? Thick darkness. Why does he say that? Because he's looking at that cloud. You can't even see through it. It's like a thick mist. And he remembers the psalm of his father David, Psalm 18, that he wrote about 15 years before he died. And in verse 11, he says, the Lord dwells in thick darkness. Solomon learned that from his father, but then his eyes saw it. He saw a cloud that no eyes can penetrate. He saw that amazing glory. 
He made darkness his hiding place. He hid himself in the clouds. The people are in awe. So verse 14, what do they do? What do the people do in verse 14? What do they all do? They stand up. They weren't told, the audience will now please rise. Something went through them like a shock of awe and wonder. There's glory here. It's it's amazing. God himself has come down. Then the king stands, raises his hands to heaven, and leads the people in one of the longest prayers in the Bible. Chapter 8, verse 23. Verse 22 says, Solomon stood before the Lord, spread out his hands to heaven. Verse 23, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. He prays for the next 30 verses. One of the longest prayers in all the Bible. One of the most glorious Five times he says, God, I know these people, even with this beautiful house, these people are going to forget you. And when they forget you, he says this. Look at chapter 8, verse 30. What's the last word of verse 30, depending on your translation? Forgive. Chapter 8, verse 34. Do you see forgive? Chapter 8, verse 34. Forgive the sin of your people. Chapter 8, verse 36. What's that? Chapter 8, verse 39. Do you see forgive? Chapter 8, verse 50. Forgive your people. Five different times Solomon's whole prayer. Do you see the difference between him and us? Five times Solomon says, oh God, look at this glory and this wonder. There is no way that we can keep this up. We can't. We can't keep up 183,000 workers. We can't keep up covering it with gold. We can't keep our hearts pure. We can't keep the cloud of God here on us. Oh God, keep us and forgive us. That's what he prays. When he finishes praying, what does he do? Look at chapter 8, verse 62. And the king and all Israel with him. What did they do in verse 62? Offer a sacrifice. How many sacrifices do they offer? Verse 63. Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord. 22,000 cattle. 120,000 sheep. 142,000 animals. Why? Because they were making atonement for all the people of Israel. The Muslims like to tell us, look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament just says, repent, repent. There's no atonement. There's no sacrifice. Keep reading. Yes, Solomon says repent. He prays five times. Repent, forgive. Repent, forgive. But as soon as he's done praying, what does he do? He goes out and gets a sacrifice and kills it to cover the sins of the nation. And for the next 14 days, they feast and celebrate with that meat that they slaughtered. 
14 days. Look at verse 65. At that time Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him, a great congregation, from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of Egypt before the Lord our God. Seven days and seven days, even 14 days. Let me ask you, why did they do this? Go back now to chapter 8, verse 43. Why did they do this? Chapter 8, verse 43. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calls to you for, so that all people of the earth may know your name. And fear you as do your people Israel. Look at chapter 8 verse 60. That was in his prayer. Now Solomon is giving another speech to the people. Chapter 8 verse 60. All the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God. And there is no one else. Verse 61. Therefore let your heart be perfect with the Lord our God. Let me tell you this, brothers and sisters, God built the temple so that all the earth would know God. And you, if you are one of God's people, your heart must be perfect so that outsiders will know that there is a one, that there is one true God. Why does your pastor urge you to be devoted to Jesus, to come to the services, to pray and fast? To evangelize, to read your Bibles. Why am I always talking to you? Hey, let's be more committed. Let's be more committed. Why? Because in so doing, verse 61, I just read it to you. By your commitment, all the earth will know. If you are half-hearted and disinterested, what does the earth know? In 1952, Stalin's reign of terror, Stalin is known as the man of steel. That's what the word means or his name means. It wasn't his real name. He took it. The dictator of Russia in 1952, Stalin's reign of terror forced the churches to meet at night, one in the morning, two in the morning, no more than 12 people. Because if anyone saw that there was a a, a group of people coming together, forget coronavirus. The neighbors would inform in order to get money. And if they told the police, oh, the Christians are meeting at that house. The Christians are meeting up in Newtown. The Christians are meeting over there on Camille Street. Oh, you know, they meet down there. They meet in Mikado Park. If they were told where the Christians were meeting, the police would raid them. I have a book called The Persecutor. Of an 18-year-old boy, an 18-year-old Russian who was very strong. They hired him and for three years he beat Christians. Breaking into house churches and taking them away. Until he too became a Christian by the holiness and commitment of the Russian believers. And I have a picture, or I've seen the picture, of a Russian church in the middle of winter with snow up to their knees. Gathered around in the bush. They can't sing and they can't be loud. They have to talk in hushed tones so that no one hears them. There's one Bible. And in the Russian winters, it can get very cold. We don't know anything of that cold. Have you ever been in cold so that when you breathe through your nose, the nose hairs freeze? You're shocked at that. I've been in that in Chicago and it gets much colder in Russia. 
Those Russian Christians met in the winter standing with one Bible to share. I ask you, do we have that commitment? That's the, the message of this, of this temple. Look at their commitment. For 20 years, their whole economy is going to be directed toward the temple. The gold, the silver, the brass, everything is given to that. And when God comes down, the people stop for two weeks. Ask yourself, what does my commitment say in comparison with this? Well, Solomon's not done. He's offered the sheep, but chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 3, the Lord says to Solomon, chapter 9, verse 3, God speaks to him. He says, I've heard your prayer. What did Solomon pray for? Forgive the people when they sin. And God says, I've heard it. Friends, when we meet to pray, let us meet to pray for spiritual requests. And God will hear us. Let us meet to pray that God would forgive our sins. Let us meet to pray that he would give us love for Christ. Let us meet to pray that we would not backslide. Let us meet to pray that people would be converted. He will answer those requests. Chapter 9, verse 3. God promises to hear his prayer. God promises to watch. In verse 3, I will put my name in the house and my eyes and my heart will be there forever. Verse 4, there's a little word that starts with an I in verse 4. It's a frightening word. What's the word? It's there again in verse 6. If. God will do his part if. God will do something if. You've got to meet the condition. You've got to meet this this requirement. What's the requirement in verse 4? Three things. Number one, walk before me. Like David your father. Number two. Do. All that I have commanded you. What's number three in verse four? Keep my commandments. My ordinances. My statutes. My judgments. He says. Fellowship with me. Love me. Walk with me. You do that. And I'll do my side. James chapter four. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into heaviness and your joy into sorrow. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he then will lift you up. He doesn't lift up anyone to heaven who does not humble themselves on earth. This is an amazing section But then verses 7, 8, and 9 are the curses. If you don't meet the requirements, what's going to happen in verse 7? I will cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them. This house which I have hallowed for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all people. And 275 years later, it happened. 275 years. 
That's how long the people kept the condition. Not even that long. God was merciful for 275 years to them. The architecture, management, building, engraving, sculpture, ceremony, prayer, speeches, sacrifices. All of that show that it is a very hard thing to come before God. That's the message this morning. That's the message here. It is very difficult to come before God. It is not a light thing. It is not a small thing. It's not something you can even do. It's too hard for you. It's beyond you. I sometimes give in jest large books of theology to my children, a hundred or or a thousand or more pages, and say, here, read this by the evening and I'll give you ten rand. Jokes and jests and say, here you go, read this, study this. Knowing, how could they possibly do that? It's too great for them, it's too big for them. How could they possibly do that? This is no jest. God says to you, very simply... I will not come down without this kind of country-shaping change. It's impossible. He won't come down. He won't meet with us. How could we do it? Imagine if you lived in Turkey in this time. You'd have to walk, walk a thousand kilometers to maybe see the throne of God. What if you lived in Spain or Portugal? What if you were from Africa and Ethiopia? You have to plan six months trip just to get there. What if you lived in China, across the ocean? This temple destroys the modern view that we have. We have this modern view that says, it's no problem. I can come before God. We pray. I I heard a a young boy when I was in college one time say, when I pray, I like to just say, Daddy. And I don't close my eyes because I just want to feel like I'm talking to my dad. I know that Romans 8 says, Abba, Father. But let us not forget that the temple is here. The gold, the engraving, the sculpture, the pillars, the colonnades, the height. Now, I tried to show you that it's impossible, it's too difficult, it's too great. You can't meet with God. But here's what's amazing. This is not the end of the book. Have you ever read the whole thing? Listen to these verses, Matthew 12, verse 6. Someone greater than the temple is here. Greater than the temple? The temple took 20 years of a whole nation working together. It took over 40 billion rand. Someone greater than the temple? Who has 40 billion rand to toss around his pocket change? Who? Who could that be? John 2, verse 19. Jesus walks through Herod's temple and says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, Forty and six years our fathers were building this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he spoke to them of the temple of his body. 
When Jesus was raised from the dead, the Pharisees tried to take Peter and John. They tried to persecute them and put them in prison. Boys, shh. They tried to take Peter and John and put them in prison and persecute them. And at that time, Peter stood up. They beat Peter and John and said, don't talk anymore about Jesus. And Peter said to them, you tell us not to talk about Jesus, but I'll tell you the cornerstone and foundation that you builders rejected. Oh, you built your beautiful society. You have your little economy. You have your universities. You have your big businesses. You've got your roads and your infrastructure. You've got your town planning. You think you're so clever. You've got your little armies over there. But the builders who were so clever built on the wrong foundation because they threw away the cornerstone. He's called the cornerstone again in 1 Peter Chapter 2, and there it says, we are built on him, a living temple. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. The temple is Christ. He is the one where God comes down. You don't have to build a building 15 meters high. You don't have to build a building 30 meters long, covered with gold on the floors. You don't have to take a chisel and engrave perfectly lions and palm trees on the walls. You don't need uh, pillars that are 9 meters high with lattice work. You don't need to have colonnades. What you need is something you cannot get even through architecture. You need Christ. You need Jesus Christ who came down and he's better than 142,000 sacrifices because Hebrews 9 says the blood of bulls and goats could never make anything clean. But this man, when he was offered one time, can you imagine saying that to Solomon? Solomon offers 142,000 sacrifices and this man comes and says, Number one wasn't necessary, and two, and three, and four, and up to a thousand, and ten thousand, and fifty thousand, and eighty thousand. All of these animals are unnecessary because I am superior to all of them. The true believer looks at the temple and then runs to the New Testament and sees Christ. And even better, the true Christian runs to the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, and hears these words. And here's the words of the Apostle Paul. For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I have tried, however poorly, to show you what an impossible feat it is for us to draw near to God. But now in the new covenant, you have something greater than electricity. You have something greater than running water. You have something greater than to buy a product by swiping a card. You have something greater than turning a key and and driving somewhere. You have the chance for God to meet with you and to come into your heart. This is amazing. This is unheard of, unthinkable. Ephesians 2 verse 20 says, we are the living temple. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 17 says, you are the temple. It's a plural you. All of you believers are God's temple. And as I already mentioned, 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says, you are living bricks. That's why you need to join the church. And that's where church membership comes from. Because the church is a building. You need to be a member to be a brick in the building. You need to support the church. Because if one brick doesn't support it, it's going to crumble and fall away. You need to support that building. Oh, brothers and sisters, I wonder... Do we comprehend how impossible it is for God to meet with man? All around this town are people who say like this. Oh yeah, I received Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I was saved. When was it? Uh, 
2002. What is that? These are great things we're talking about. It's God meeting with man. It's heaven coming to earth. It's your sins being washed away. It's a building covered with gold and decorated with every kind of art that takes the most brilliant artists in the world. 20 years. That's in there. I skipped over it in chapter 7. Solomon goes to find the best of the best artists to decorate the temple. And in Revelation chapter 17, it says, the fine robes are the righteousness of the saints. Right now, brothers and sisters, when you lead a holy life, when you are committed to Jesus Christ, you are beautifying the temple of of God. And if you live a life of sin, you are either desecrating the temple or proving that you are no temple at all. Because remember, in the when Je- when Jehovah spoke to Solomon, he said, "I will dwell there if Hebrews three verse six, you." Are Christ's temple if. Do you know what comes after the if in Hebrews 3 verse 6? If you hold fast to your faith in Christ firm until the end. If you don't hold fast to Christ until the end, you aren't his temple. The race is not done for any of you. This temple is a magnificent building project, but it was eventually destroyed. But the temple of God now is his people. And you are that temple if you grab and hold to Christ. Hebrews 3 verse 6. May we hold to him with all of our hearts and souls. Let's close our eyes.